Lord, I pray that these words that we have sung are real, that we mean them with our very fleeting breath, that we would proclaim your name and strive to live faithfully before you. We praise you for the gathering of this assembly, which reflects the victory of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that his mission to save was fulfilled in saving the church and drawing us to yourself now around this word. We pray that you would open our eyes to the truth, help us to see it afresh, to be renewed in our spirit. And for those who know not Christ, that there would be a light that dawns, that you would bring them to saving faith in Jesus as our longing and We pray, Lord, that in your sovereign grace that you would open blind eyes and help us together to see what we need to see from your revealed word. We thank you for these songs of grace, for the gathering that is here, and now pray that in this time your spirit would teach us the truth. Through Christ we pray, amen. Please be seated. Imagine regaining consciousness in the rubble of a collapsed building. You have no idea what happened, but realize that you are trapped and there is no way out. Your only hope is that someone from the world above rescues you. Your injuries are significant and you wait in agony in the darkness, praying for deliverance and crying out for help. While you're there, suddenly there is a large beam of sunlight that illumines a massive cement slab that's several yards above you and beyond you, where you're laying trapped, and hope rises in your spirit. Then it leaps for joy when you see on that slab where that light is shining, the dancing images and shadows of people walking. You see no one. You hear no one, but those shadows indicate that rescuers are headed your way. For now, you find great hope in those shadows. But it's the face of that first rescuer to reach you that really matters. And you are rescued. You recover from your injuries and you love to tell the story of your rescue But not in a thousand years will your story ever center on the shadows that danced on the slab. You may mention them. You may remember those shadows with hope in the future from time to time. But if the rescuers who made those shadows never reached you, you would have no story to tell. In this parable, the shadows on the wall represent the law of the old covenant sacrificial system that we've been looking at here in the book of Hebrews for some weeks. That sacrificial system, as we know, pointed to the reality, to the substance of Jesus Christ and his mediation of the new covenant. The shadows were good. They were a source of hope under the Old Covenant era of redemptive history. But it is the substance, it is the body of Jesus substituted in our place on the cross. That's where we find ultimate hope and where the shadows of the Old Covenant always pointed. Notice Hebrews chapter 10 as we come now to this chapter. And let me just point us directly to the heart of it. Verse 12. 
Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12. Here's the heart of all that the author is saying. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So our eternal destiny rests on this revelation. And it's something that we need to take to heart and continue to feed upon as believers in the gospel. Hebrews chapters 1 through 9, we've looked at the supremacy of the new covenant to the old covenant. The supremacy or the superiority of Christ's high priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. We have looked at the superiority of Christ's blood to that of animals and sacrifice. And the way in which God, through that bloody imagery, continued to point to the necessity of death. Christ's death being the pinnacle and that final death. The superiority even of the heavenly sanctuary at which Jesus presented his death in a typological fulfillment of the very presence of the throne room of God. There, his death atoning for the sins of his people. Now as we come to chapter 10, the author really ties up all of these themes into one final glorious chapter here before moving on to other ideas. But as he does... He looks at the all-sufficient final sacrifice of Jesus to purchase the salvation of His people. We're not going to find here in chapter 10 anything particularly new or novel, but just a summing up of all that is here. And again, now at this place, as we come to this point as a church, to just feed again upon this final and all-sufficient sacrifice for sins. Your eternal destiny hinges on it, as does mine. So let us deepen our understanding of it as we compare it with the old covenant that for centuries prepared God's people uh, for the work of Christ. We find in the first 10 verses of Hebrews 10 that Jesus' death is the all-sufficient sacrifice to which the old covenant pointed. The old covenant, the shadow, Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice, the substance. We note first of all that of the insufficiency, the old covenant sacrificial system could not provide complete forgiveness of sins. Verse 1 of chapter 10, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, let's just stop there in mid-sentence just for a moment, the law, the Mosaic law, that God in Himself instituted over the centuries to prepare people for what it means that Jesus would die and be the sacrifice for sin. The law holds but a shadow of the good things to come. That is the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not the true form of these realities. And so, continuing on, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Those who draw near in worship, who come to God, cannot be perfected. That doesn't mean given sinless perfection, but they can't be made right. They can't be set right by these animal sacrifices. So the Mosaic law as a shadow of the new covenant that Christ would inaugurate by dying as the sacrificial lamb of God, this Mosaic law was incomplete. 
And it was incomplete in part, as we see there at the end of verse 1, because it was the, the sacrifices are continually offered every year. So the repeated offering of these animal sacrifices reminded the worshipers in some subtle sense that the system could ultimately not save. It was God's system. It was His Word. But yet it had to, these, these sacrifices had to continue to be offered. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Is that not the case? If it worked, it would end. But the sacrifices were constantly offered. So picture a worshiper approaching the tabernacle and coming to that place of offering and putting his hands on the head of the lamb. Then the priest slits the throat and you can actually feel the life leave the lamb. And that worshiper has his hands on that head and senses, here but for the grace of God go I. This lamb is in my place. And that worshiper walks away that day and says, what? Now I know that my sins are forever forgiven, that God's wrath is wholly satisfied, that I stand now with a clear conscience before God. No. It's, I'll be right back here again. I'm going to have to come back again. There was a sense of covering, a sense of atonement and forgiveness, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't wholly satisfying. You notice there at the end of verse 2 that there's still consciousness of sin. Pointing us back to nine, chapter 9 and verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That worshiper could not walk away and say, all is well forever. No animal sacrifice could do that. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Every year, it may refer specifically to the Day of Atonement or may just be more generic that year by year it was clear that these animal sacrifices could not atone for sin. Remember on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Only this day, only this day once per year by and only the high priest. And he'd go into that area and offer blood for his own sin and for the sins of the people. And remember the, 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 the accounts that are given of ancient Israel, how the Israelites would wait with bated breath, literally, to see if he came back out. And they said that it was like a wind blew when Israel would sigh together relief when they first saw that high priest enter that tabernacle enter or exit the tabernacle exit the temple god had received the gift there was a sense of satisfaction but in this ritual no one could miss the fact that hey here we are again on the day of atonement just like last year and again next year God willing, we'll be seeking forgiveness of sin through sacrifice. 
It's impossible. Here's the reality, verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now in verses 5 and following, the author supports this assertion with an appeal to the Old Testament text. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said... Now at this point, his reasoning from Scripture is is pretty complicated. it, It runs deep. But he's right on track with what... David is revealing in Psalm 40, which we've read earlier today. The author finds support for this thesis there as he looks at David's psalm as prophetic of Messiah and what is to come, of the substance that that is now of the shadow, as David writes. There's a lot going on here, and I I, I trust the plan is for next Lord's Day to narrow in here as we think uh, specifically of the Incarnation and to develop this psalm and these ideas more fully next week. But suffice it here to say that David's psalm acknowledges two realities. First, God's ultimate concern is not with animal sacrifices. Sacrifices and offerings, he says, verse 5, quoting, you have not desired. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But notice what he pairs with that. He sees that, first of all, that God is not ultimately concerned about animal sacrifice, but there's a second element here in the psalm. That's the latter part of verse 5. But a body you have prepared for me. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So here's the shadow, a sacrificial lamb offered on the altar. Here's the substance, the eternal Son of God takes on flesh, is given a body with the mission in his own heart to do the will of the Father. So now, developing that passage, verse 8, the author says, when he said, Above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. It's pretty much covered all offerings this way. Then, verse 9, he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Prophetically, David sees that the animal sacrifices are insufficient, but that there is a body coming who will do the will of God. Pointing then rightly from this passage to Christ, saying in verse 10 that by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is not to say that born again believers are morally perfect. It means, by the way, our Memory passage this week is 1 John 1, 8, 9. If we say that we have no sin, we are lying. We, we do. So it's, it's not, that's not the point of it. That we have <coughs> been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all and are therefore perfect. But it means what? Adult class, here we are. It means that we are definitively sanctified. 
That is, we are declared righteous and stand in a forgiven state before God because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. This is the substance of the shadow. I think it's good for us here to stop for a moment and just consider that this is one of the most unique and precious treasures of the Christian faith, right here in verse 10, and and what will continue. Compared to other religions, genuine Christianity is utterly distinct in every aspect of its faith and practice. And yet there are commonalities. Let's just look at where we're at here today. We have gathered together as the body of Christ. In a Christian construct from biblical doctrine, this is a unique gathering. We understand that. And yet, people of other religions gather for worship. The devoted come together. So it's not entirely unique in that sense. But what we read here in verse 10 is utterly unparalleled in world religions. All other religions promote and celebrate in one way or another the lifelong persistent effort of the devout to earn or at least to incrementally receive salvation. Whether it's attaining nirvana, advancing to a higher stage of existence and reincarnation, the earning of heaven by piecemeal, receiving the grace that gets us there, the effort is perpetual. The devout must continue to devote themselves to attaining. As Leon Morris notes, no other religion in the world posits a single act that saves forever. A historical work of the divine that secures the eternal good of his followers. This is that act and this is that face, the Lord Jesus Christ. All is brought to see him. All are brought to see him here. And so if you are a born again follower of Christ Jesus, know that you were made holy. <clears throat> you were made holy in Christ forever when you trusted him as your Savior. In that place, you came out from under the headship of fallen Adam, and you have come under the headship of the new Adam the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, there is no parallel. This, again, doesn't mean that we are sinless, but that our standing and our position is secured in the holiness of Christ that has been imputed to us. And I'll tell you, believer, we might get used to it a bit, but we walk around with a sense of rest that this world knows nothing about. There's a sense of knowing my sins are forgiven. And we, like we talked about that worshiper that would walk away from the animal sacrifice and say, I'm forgiven, but I'm going to be back here. We go away saying, it is finished. That deeply influences the spirit that we carry in this world. There is a sense of relief and forgiveness of sin, and we owe that to nothing but our Lord Jesus Christ and His grace. That was the shadow. Bloody sacrifice after bloody sacrifice. Necessary. But here's the substance. 
We have been sanctified. We have been definitively made holy ones through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all, we do walk away with clear conscience. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. We then look positively to the all-sufficiency of Christ's work. The new covenant provided full forgiveness of sin by means of the sacrifice of Christ's body. I'm behind in my outline, aren't I? Here we go. There's second point. Jesus' death is the final sacrifice in which our forgiveness rests. And again, we know this, but let us feed upon it, believer. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You know what there wasn't in the tabernacle? No seating. The priests who went into the tabernacle in the holy place, in the holy of holies, no chairs. They stood as an act indicating that the work was always ongoing. Day after day, year after year, animal sacrifice slaughtered after animal sacrifice slaughtered and offered to God. The system of shadows never rested. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priests stood this great and final high priest sits. The sacrifice that Jesus offered was his own body, 9.14 and 10.5. But unlike the animal sacrifices, Jesus' sacrifice was a once and forever matter. It is finished. The shadows gave way to the substance. And Christ, as conqueror of death, sat down at God's right hand, the place of ultimate honor in the universe. In that exalted position, notice verse 13, that he remains waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Redemption's plan's not finished. Time must pass, but Jesus is seated. His enemies are defeated. It's just a matter of winding up history. From our perspective, it's taken forever. From his perspective, not at all. Right on time whenever that is whenever he comes but here we are they waited for jesus in his first advent we're waiting for jesus in the second he has already won he's the conqueror he waits until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet until that is in the imagery of that ancient world until total conquest is acknowledged Stressing again the finality of Christ's sacrifice, we read in verse 14, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected. Here again is the definitive or positional sanctification. Not perfected from daily sin in our ongoing walk. Not yet. That's the not yet part. But the already part is we stand in a position of saints. We are the sanctified. We are the purified ones through the work that God has done. Then he speaks of being sanctified. Speaking of the ongoing process of new believers joining the fold and perhaps also growing in Christ. 
There's some debate as to whether or not the author of Hebrews even deals with progressive sanctification, but it, it certainly works for us that way here in verse 14. He's perfected for all time, done definitive sanctification, positional sanctification, those who are being sanctified. And we see this idea repeatedly in the New Testament. The work's done, but we are working out the implications of that work. We have been saved, and we are being saved. So I think we have here. But now, at verses, at, in verses 15 to 17, the author draws support from the Old Testament prophets for this position. Verse 15 The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Back to the adult class. By the way, right now for circumstantial reasons, we have just one adult class. So I'm making more reference to it than would be normal. But notice it there again from our class this morning. The Holy Spirit bears witness. Who wrote the psalm? David. But what David says under the inspiration of the Spirit is the voice of God himself. What the Bible says, God says. And what does he say? Jeremiah 31, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. Those who are participants of the new covenant have internalized the word of God. All of them. This is necessary, it is a vital aspect of the new covenant. The individual participating in that new covenant has himself or herself internalized the word of God. I see what God says, I trust the word of God, I trust its witness to Christ as Savior. This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days. I will write the law of God on their hearts. They've been given soft hearts, renewed hearts, and that word is written on that heart. That's a very important point as we consider who participates in the new covenant and how. But he's actually aiming at the next statement as what is more important to the concept that he's developing here in chapter 10, and that is that I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You see, what the shadow could not do, that worshiper walking away having offered a sacrificial lamb, what could not happen there does happen under the new covenant. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's not potential. That's actual for all who participate in the new covenant. He will not remember their sins or lawless deeds again. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I should just mention here, too, in verse 17, I will remember their sins no more. Does not mean that God's memory fails. This phrase of, forgive and forget, we don't want to impose upon God. It may actually graciously happen with us that we forget what has been done wrong that we have forgiven. God cannot forget in the sense of a human, but he will not remember our sins against us. That's the key. 
because of our forgiven position in Christ. And so where there is this forgiveness, this positional forgiveness for time and for eternity, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, remember the original authors or recipients were tempted to return to the old covenant system in order to avoid persecution. That's a simplistic way of putting it, but that's what they're dealing with. How foolish it would be to return to the shadows when the substance is here. He's not pulling back at all. But giving them full guns here that everything you're considering doing is off track. Don't go there. You are rescued from the rubble of a collapsed building. You tell the story often. But imagine that somebody began to tell that story and all they ever talked about was the shadows. People be a little confused. Well, that's, that's really interesting. The shadows are kind of dancing on the wall and that was your hope and your salvation coming. And, but didn't somebody actually show up and rescue you? You say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did. Oh, those shadows. They'd be checking in, making sure you were okay. That's what he's saying here. Don't go back there. Don't go to the shadows It's the rescuer. It's the substance. It's Christ that has come. That's what's all important. Now, as we're gathered here, this is really not our danger. We're not sitting there severely tempted to return to the old covenant ways. I mean, if you've got a hankering to offer an animal sacrifice, come and talk to us afterwards. But it, it might not be healthy, right? I mean, we, don't, we just laugh about it. We don't even think about it. But positively, just like them, and gathered with them at God's, in God's presence someday, we too can rejoice and bask in the victory of the once-for-all single sacrifice for sins in the exalted reign of our conquering Savior. There too is where our faith is focused and where our hope lies. And we too in different ways can be pulled away from the centrality of Christ's sacrifice as if the shadows of this world, wherever they might line up in some way, are the reality. He's the reality. And I would say to you, if you've not received God's gift of eternal life by means of Jesus' death to pay the penalty of your sins, Undoubtedly, then, choosing one of several approaches. First, you just have no interest or concern to seek salvation from your sins. Or, just as dangerous, you're striving to achieve or incrementally receive eternal life. You may not have even thought of it that way, but I would, cons- I would encourage you to at least ask the question, is that how I'm going about life? Striving to please God on terms mostly of my making. Striving to please God in my own strength. Striving to do better and be better so that God is pleased. 
it'd be better that you did offer animal sacrifices. Because in that place, at least you would be acknowledging that death is necessary to cover your sin. What an, what an offense to God who has sent His Son for people to say, I don't even need to offer a sacrifice. I'll just be good enough on my own. But in either of these scenarios, you need to face the reality that you will stand before God someday to give account of your life. If you have no interest in seeking salvation in Christ while on earth, you will wish that you had. And if you imagine your good deeds will satisfy God in themselves, prepare to be gravely disappointed. When any of us enters eternity, it will not be who we are. It will not be what we made of ourselves, how morally upright we were, and certainly not how good we were compared to those who lived around us. What will matter is this truth. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. I would encourage you, plead with you, do not be counted among His enemies. If you know you're not His enemy, if you know that through the new birth you have come to be His child, then let us all rejoice again in the all-sufficient, once-and-forever sacrifice of our Savior. And let us sing as a renewed, sanctified church. Father, I thank You for the songs of joy that emit from this congregation, the joy that has been ours today to sing the praises of the Lord, to rejoice in Christ, the Savior who has been given to us, to take on a body, to do Your will, by dying as the final and all-sufficient sacrifice. Father, what joy is ours to rejoice in these truths. We pray in behalf of those who are separated from them. We pray for repentance and faith. And we pray, Father, for those of us who know You as Savior. May we come now to this point again in the gathering of the assembly to say this is what matters. This is the center of our life. The sacrifice, the death, the bloody death of our great high priest who mediates for us and is the sacrifice, who takes the effects of his death in paying the penalty of sin into the very throne room that you occupy and now seated at your right hand in a way we struggle to even begin to understand, seated there in victory and conquest. This is what matters. I pray that we would draw near to You today knowing that there is no need to come with sacrifice in hand. There is no need to sacrifice Jesus again and again in the host. But we have come before You in that one sacrifice, trusting. As we gather by Your grace this evening to gather around the table and to remember this death and to remember its all-sufficient 
finality. I pray that you would continue to deepen and grow us and draw us to deep affections for Christ this day and through this word. And we will thank you for what you're pleased to do in his name. Amen.